Well, because understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles. For those of you who are in here, there's a Bible in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. So we're in our fourth week of our series on what the Bible says about justice. And if you haven't figured it out yet, uh, it says a lot about justice. And one of the simplest definitions of justice is just giving people what they're due. What does a person do? You give them what they're due. But the Bible teaches the Bible are due being treated, that people are due being treated with dignity and worth because they're made in the image of God. And so that's the theme that runs through the Bible. There are two kinds of justice that, ru that runs through the Bible is retributive justice, that's where punishment is meted for injustice, and the other one is restorative justice. But nine out of ten occasions of the word justice in the Bible have to do with restorative justice, has to do with protecting and restoring human dignity. It's all about that uh, throughout the Bible. So before we jump into the Bible and into the sermon, let's pray as we do every week to ask God the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word to us, to our hearts and to our minds. And this prayer is based on 2 Timothy chapter 3, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that all scripture is breathed out by you. Your word is for us, and we want to hear and we want to understand. And by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see your truth. Open our hearts and our minds to your work in us. Teach us and train us in your righteousness. Correct us and equip us to do your good work, all for your kingdom, for your honor, and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we've been doing most weeks of the series, we're going to watch the Bible Project video on justice and specifically be looking this time for what it says about oppressors or the oppressed becoming the oppressors. Let's watch the video. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? 
The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, 
and to walk humbly with your God. All right. So today, uh, we're looking specifically at that theme of when the oppressed become the oppressors. So in the course that we do here at Five Oaks, the Story of God course, just in case you're new with us, we, we really encourage people as quickly as possible to go through that course. It's six weeks long. We look at the, at the whole story of the Bible, and the Old Testament, the whole Bible we treat or we look at it as if it were a play of sorts. And so you've got the first act, which is the Old Testament. You've got the second act, which is the New Testament. You have seven scenes that we look at in the Old Testament, three scenes that we look at in the New Testament. Today we're in the last two scenes, the last of the seven scenes of the Old Testament. And I think that the best way to see what that scene says about justice is to review again, scene by scene, where we've been and walk our way um, through the Bible story and what it says about justice. So we start at the very beginning with the scenes that we, called, that we call creation and separation. And that scene runs from Genesis 1 through 11. Now, understand when we say the scene runs from Genesis 1 through 11, its effects continue on all the way through the whole Bible. Each one of these scenes, the effects continue on all the way through the Bible. But that's the way we, we describe the beginning chapters of the Bible. So in creation, we see the biblical idea of justice is rooted in the dignity of humanity because we are God's image bearers. We have been made in the image of God. God created a good world, we see. And he sets up the world to flourish, to flourish in every single way from, from food uh, to work and what our work should feel like and look like to families, to communities, to relationships, and not just relationships with each other, but relationships between humanity and God. There's order, there's harmony. We talked in week one of the series about a term that the Bible uses for that throughout the Old Testament, it's the term shalom which we translate peace, but it means more than an absence of conflict. It means the way things are supposed to be. There's order and there's harmony. But humanity in Genesis 3 rebels, and in spite of the rebellion, we saw that God launches a rescue mission, a rescue mission to restore humanity. The whole story points towards Jesus and then towards the cross and the resurrection. And it ends with the new creation, but we get to the new creation because of everything that the story points to, um, Jesus and his cross and the resurrection. So in a real sense, the whole story of the Bible is a story about restorative justice. It's about bringing things back to the new creation the way things are supposed to be. The third scene is a scene that we call promise, and it runs from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of Genesis, Genesis uh, 50. So in that story, God chooses one man out of all humanity, and not for anything that he had done that was particularly good. He was, he was an idolater just like everybody else. And he chooses him, and he makes a promise to him to make a nation, a great nation out of him. But he also makes a promise that he will bless all the nations through him. But God asks for this one thing. He says, trust me. And the trust is demonstrated by after trusting him, he does what God says. And so when he does what God says, he trusts him, not because of what he does, but because of his trust. The scripture tells us God counts it as righteousness, counts him as righteous, because he has, like I said, he has put his trust in God. So 
Adam and Eve, at the beginning of the story, failed to trust God. I mean, that's what, why they eat from the fruit of the tree. But Abraham trusts God, and in his trust, his relationship with God is restored. And that's the theme, of course, that runs, uh, we, we saw it in our last week of our series on Romans right before this, when we got to Romans chapter 4, is Paul says, in the same way as Abraham was made right by trusting, so also we are made right with God. We are counted righteous because of faith, because he believes God, and same for us. He also gives, God gives him this mission to bless the world by doing justice and righteousness. And so we looked at Genesis 18, verses 19, verse 19, where God says this, For I have chosen Abraham so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. There's righteousness and justice. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So you have justice and righteousness bound together there, and we trace that theme all the way through the Old Testament, showing how those two themes are bound together at key points in the story. Just have these key points, and there they show up again, um, over and over again. So biblical social justice will always, and we say social because justice always has to do with relationships, biblical social justice will always then reflect the righteousness of God. It's going to align with what is right what is ethical, what is right, what is good. Now, as expected, and God really gives plenty of clues that this is going to happen, Abraham's family is a mess. Um, and they eventually wind up oppressed, an oppressed minority in a land surrounded by people who just want to kill them. And then they eventually wind up in Egypt, and they wind up enslaved in Egypt, the oppressed. We saw it in the video, and you maybe have read the story in the Old Testament. So we get to the next two scenes, which we looked at last week, which is sacrifice and law. And so sacrifice and law runs from Exodus all the way through Ruth, and after that comes 1 Samuel, the story of the kings, and the first king uh, being Saul. So the sacrifice part of the story is what happens when God brings retributive justice down on Egypt so that they will let God's people go. And so there is a sacrifice of a lamb, and the sacrifice of the lamb protects the Israelites and is, a, in a sense, restorative justice, while at the same time, God is bringing retributive justice through these plagues uh, that are coming on, on, Israel, on, uh, on Egypt. Um, so God takes them out of Egypt and he brings them into the promised land. Now, if you know the story of the conquest of Canaan, what you're seeing there is an example, and it is framed this way in the Old Testament. It's an example or an application of retributive justice to the inhabitants of that land. But all the while that God is bringing retributive justice to the land, what is being done is God is taking the Israelites on a journey to bringing restorative justice to the whole world. You can't understand the conquest of Canaan without understanding what the bigger story and what God is trying to accomplish is. And so, and so that's what's happening throughout that story. Now, on their way, before they enter the promised land, God gives them a set of laws, what we know as the Old Testament laws, the Ten Commandments, and all the other laws. And there's three kinds of laws. There's, there's civil laws for them as a nation. There are uh, ceremonial laws for their religion around the tabernacle and the temple, and there are moral laws that God gives them. But embedded 
in those laws over and over again, as you read through, embedded into them are reminders not to treat certain people the way they were treated. Remember when you were enslaved, don't treat people in the way that you were treated when you were enslaved. And he has special words for how you treat foreigners and immigrants in the land. Don't, don't live that way. There are also warnings, don't live in the way that the Canaanites, the people of Canaan lived. Constant warnings not to live unjustly like the inhabitants of Canaan. And there's positively these words that says, if you live by my laws, people are going to look at you and they're going to marvel at your God. This is, this is all part of the story of bringing the nations, um, the blessing to the nations. God also states his desire over and over again to restore shalom. So listen to what, uh, what God says about poverty in Israel. So even the laws are to restore shalom. This is what it says. However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands that I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. That's, that's the plan. Live in this way, and there will not even be poor people among you. He's, he's talking about a restoration. He's talking about shalom. God is saying, listen, follow my ways, and I will restore shalom among you. All right, so we get now to the last two scenes of the Old Testament, kings and prophets. That's our focus for today. So that runs from 1 Samuel all the way to the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi. A couple of weeks ago, I traced the theme of justice and righteousness. Like, just took you to various places. So the next time those two terms wind up together after the call to Abraham to live in a particular way and his descendants, the next time is King David. And it says he ruled, the summary, when David was at his height, of his, um, of his kingship, it says David ruled with justice and righteousness. But I said he did that until he didn't anymore. <laughs> because about three chapters later, we have uh, the story, uh, beginning of a story, where um, David sleeps with the wife of one of his mighty men, one of his best warriors. Uh, he gets her pregnant. Uh, to cover up his sin, well, there's, there's a lot that happens in between, but eventually he has that man killed by having him go into battle and then end up, uh, then people pulling back so that he's killed. And he's not the only one that's killed. If you read the story, a bunch of men around him are killed as well. So David has those murders on his record. And so after all of that, here is uh, it's, it, telling the story in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. It says that Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, mourned, and David brought her into his home. Uh, she became his wife. She bore a son. But the thing David did had done, that David had done, displeased the Lord. All right, so we pick up there, 2 Samuel chapter 12. A story that's probably familiar at least 90% of you. For those of you who are going to hear for the first time, 
it's, it's like when I see somebody who hasn't seen a movie, that I say, oh, you're so lucky you're going to get to see it for the first time. For the rest of us, it's still a very moving story. But listen, listen to what happens. The Lord sent Nathan to David. So Nathan is a prophet. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had, not, had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took of the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. That's David's story. It's the thing that we remember probably more than all of his successes. Um, that, you know, you have the story of him and Goliath, and then you have that story that you're going to remember David by. And it had a disastrous effect on the rest of the future of Israel. But what I'm going to say right now is really, really important. I want you to get this. This is not just a parable about what David did. This tells the rest of the story of the Old Testament. This parable is not just about David. This parable is about the rest of the story of Israel. The oppressed become the oppressors, and it becomes a pattern in their life. It becomes a pattern. From that point on, God is going to raise prophets like Nathan, one right after another, uh, to return, to, to call the kings and the people of Israel and the leaders of Israel to return to what is right to, uh, to justice and tell them and warn them, if you don't restore justice, you're going to experience retributive justice. So three major themes in these last two scenes of the Old Testament, there's three major themes that run from beginning uh, to end of 1 Samuel all the way through Malachi. These are warnings and condemnations. The first is the warning of idolatry. Constantly, God through the prophets is saying, don't be like the people that lived here in this land. Don't be idolaters. When you do that, you dishonor God primarily. You dishonor God, but you also demean yourselves. You lower yourselves from the position that you are is made in the image of God um, to, to instead worshiping images of God. The second thing that runs through it is immorality. They fail to live 
righteously in their relationships with one another, in their personal lives. They fail to do what is ethical. They fail to do what is right. They fail to do what is good. And then the third thing that you have running through all of the prophets is injustice. It's personal injustice. It's pervasive injustice. It's systemic injustice, meaning injustice has worked its way into the laws and systems, the way, the societies, everything that the, that, that culture has. So God condemns Israel very specifically for this kind of systemic injustice. In Isaiah chapter 10, here's what it says. Here's what it describes of the people of Israel. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. That's systemic injustice in the most plain understanding of what systemic injustice is. They create unjust laws. And unjust laws is just like one element among many elements that the prophets bring up of, of injustice that's done in the land. Again, not just as an individual, one against another, but actually gets worked into the system it's, itself. Other elements include unjust judges, uh, bribes just being accepted, nobody doing anything about them, a whole system that allows powerful people to take advantage of powerless people. It's a theme that runs all the way through the prophets. And the drumbeat of condemnations just keeps coming and coming for this. Uh, and, it's, and it's clear that God has, is saying, the oppressed have become the oppressors. My people who were once oppressed have now become the oppressors. The video does a really good job of that, taking the white sash and putting the red sash on top of Israel. But in spite of the drumbeat... And in spite of the warnings of destruction, uh, the oppressed who have become oppressors once again become the oppressed because they don't turn from the injustice. And it's into this situation that Jesus comes when the Bible begins Act 2 of the story of God, um, what we call the New Testament. So we'll look at that next week. But I want to talk about a couple of things um, at this point. One has to do with injustice as a personal and systemic problem. You can't read the Bible without recognizing that injustice has both a personal and a systemic um, uh, dimension. So a personal, uh, the personal dimension is if I, whether I am powerful or not, no matter who I am, I cheat somebody out of something. I steal something from someone. Um, I physically take advantage of someone else, okay? I hurt someone else. That's, that's a personal injustice against that person who's made in the image of God. I'm not treating them with dignity and with honor as people made or fairly as people made in the image of God. But when unjust people with power and influence make laws, form societies, create governing associations, set policies, and just basically devise the rules, injustice becomes systemic, or another way to put it, becomes baked into the society at large. It's the way things are done. The prophets speak to this kind of injustice over and over again. 
I don't know if you've seen the um, Netflix limited series. It's a one-season type series called The English Game. It's about the uh, early days of soccer in the 19th century England. And, um, and as the story portrays it, uh, you have these wealthy Englishmen who control the adult soccer uh, league, and they make the rules, and one of the rules that they make is that it needs to be an amateur sport. And they can speak very eloquently about why this needs to be an, el- uh, an amateur sport. And they actually predict some of the bad things that are you know, going to happen by professionalizing it. So it can sound really, really um, like, like they have a high vision, a kind of a, they, they have a high vision of what this sport should be. The problem is that the working class people have no time <laughs> to practice. And uh, they literally, have, I mean, they work their 12-hour days in a factory and, you know, six days a week, and they just don't have time to practice. So what winds up happening is that the richer folks practice for hours every day. They get together and they practice for hours, and then the poorer folks show up for a game and talk about what their strategy is going to be <laughs> and then play the game. And so who wins the championships year after year? It's the richer folks, because they have the leisure, the ability to practice for hours and hours. So what happens in the story, what creates some of the drama is some working class, like formerly working class owners of some of the factories start professionalizing it. They start paying people under the table and say, yeah, I'm paying you for the factory, but you can leave early and practice every day and, and that sort of thing. And so, and I remember as I'm watching it, at first I'm thinking, they're cheating, they're cheating, <laughs> until it just kind of dawned on me, it's like... Well, so are the other guys, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying cheating is okay for somebody else. I'm just saying the other guys are cheating. They are controlling everything and, and making it impossible for the other people to, um, to, uh, to, to win or to, 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 to flourish in that sort of situation. There's a systemic injustice going on there. And, you know, I think, again, as of Isaiah, woe to those who make unjust laws to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people. Uh, men's ministry, uh, journeyman, uh, recently, and I did the same thing on, on Facebook. We did a study, a uh, book study, of a book called Compassion and Conviction by uh, the founders of the AND campaign, A-N-D campaign. And uh, they also have a, a bi-weekly podcast and Justin Gibney is, I think he's, he's right now the, the leader of this, of this group. And they did an episode a few weeks ago on the voter reform law in Georgia. And, um, and so in that episode, as they're talking about the merits of it or not merits of it, as they're giving their opinion of it, he tells a story about his grandmother. So Justin Gibney is probably about 40 years old. So he's a fairly young man. Those of you who are 40 years old, I'm calling you young. It's good, right? Um, so he's a fairly young man, and he, uh, he might be younger than that, but I think he's probably around 40. And he talks about his grandmother. So this is, this is you know, in his memory. His grandmother uh, lived uh, most of her life in Colorado. Uh, somewhere in her adult life, she moved to Georgia, where he is from now and his family's from. So she moved to Georgia. He said, my grandmother was able to vote in every, and did vote in every election in Colorado. There was an opportunity to vote, she voted. When she moved to Georgia, she never voted again. 
Because at that time, it's not the case now, at that time in Georgia, you had to produce a uh, birth certificate. And he said, when my grandmother was born as a black woman, they didn't give birth certificates to black girls. And they literally did not give in that hospital birth certificates to black girls. And, um, and so he, uh, again, think about it. They created a law specific to a state knowing full well that there was a part of the population that did not have birth certificates because of a previous injustice. That's systemic injustice. Knowing, knowing what it's going to do, they did that. Did you have to produce a birth certificate? Maybe some of you did in some of the states. I've never had to produce a birth certificate to vote. I don't think that's normal. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so he just brought that up, you know, in, as part of the story of what he was talking about. Now, if Isaiah 10, 1 and 2, I'll read it again. Woe to you who make unjust laws, to those of you who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people. It's perfectly legitimate for Christians to disagree among themselves about the progress that our nation has made. You can talk about the progress in Georgia. It no longer requires birth certificates. So we can disagree as to how much progress our nation has made regarding systemic injustice. But if we believe the Bible like we say we do, and I say we, I say because that's our stance as a church, we have to be in agreement that sinful people create sinful systems. Now, that's not to say the whole system is bad, okay? I, I, I'm not saying that. Don't read, don't hear what I'm saying through some sociological model that's out there. I'm just saying, as Christians, we recognize, if we believe, believe the Bible, sinful people will inevitably create systems that have sin baked into them. I went to high school in Hialeah, Florida right next to Miami. And my school's population was, at that time, like 50% Anglo, 50% Cuban, Cuban-American. It's about 90% Cuban-American now. Um, but at the time, it was about halfway. 11th grade, uh, 1974 uh, to 1975. Uh, these are from my yearbook, these pictures, by the way. Um, I was sitting in my architectural drafting class when our teacher came in, Mr. Stover, and he showed us a pie, and he said, I, uh, the, one of the cafeteria ladies bakes this pie for me, bakes a pie for me every year. And, um, and he said, you know, I don't know how long, the last 20 years or so, uh, that, um, that he, she'd been doing this. And after he told us about it and told us what we were supposed to be working on that day, he retreated. So there's the front of the class. I'm sitting in the back of the class in one of these big drafting tables, and he's got an office in the back of the class. And uh, it's got windows on it. And uh, he retreated to his office, probably, I think we all thought, to, to eat his pie. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm working away on whatever my drafting project was at the time, when all of a sudden I hear, Williams, Williams. And I look over, and there's a guy that's just stepped out, a student. Just like that. So. 
I go into the office, and um, all the shades are down in the office, uh, and my architectural drafting teacher says, Williams, have a piece of pie. So thank you very much. So on my way to go get my piece of pie, I'm, I think I was about ready to start eating it, he goes, I can't invite any of them blanking Cubans in here because they would eat the whole blanking thing. F-bombs. So, um, in case you're new with us, my mother was Cuban. <laughs> and uh, I never met any of my American family uh, because my dad left right after I was born. I'm the only Williams in my family. And so, all my I spoke Spanish every day until I graduated from college with my grandmother. So, um, I had an accent until third grade. <laughs> I surprised people. It's funny, I was just in Mexico, and they would say, your Spanish is pretty good, which is like, sounds Cuban. Ugh. <laughs> um, but, uh, and then I tell them, you know, because they just don't expect me to, to speak Spanish. Um, but I, I remember being corrected by my third grade teacher. That's the last time I remember being corrected for my accent because I said I referred to a chair as a share. And that's a typical mistake for his, Hispanic people. So that's the last time I remember. So let me ask you something. Would that scenario that I just described to you ever happen in a school today? Probably not. <laughs> because our environment is different, right? I mean, any teacher would be scared to death without vetting very carefully every student <laughs> that he would talk to. You know, he would be sure he's heard those kinds of comments from a student, much less invite about six guys into the classroom and to make comments like that. Do you think that attitude still exists in today's society among people of power and influence? Do you think it's disappeared? Gone. <laughs> um, I personally... Personally, I believe, and this is where we can disagree, I personally believe that there have been forces through education and through media that have reduced that kind of attitude, that there is a better attitude in America today. Now, in the Miami area, we just took over. All right, so <laughs> it's, it's that simple. Um, but uh, I, I think that there are forces that have changed that, that things actually have gotten better. But all the evidence suggests, and the Bible's testimony certainly affirms the idea that prejudice still exists, that inevitably impact our laws, institutions, businesses, policies, education, and culture. I mean, that's the whole, I mean, that's what the Bible says. The prophets were written for us as well. It's not like we get a pass on what they said to Israel. We are God's people now. Just recently, there was a, um, this, the uh, commemoration of the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. There's consensus on both left and right of the political spectrum that that was a grave and horrible injustice. And hopefully, you, you read something about it or heard about it or watched the news about it. Almost 40 city blocks, predominantly black neighborhoods, burned to the ground. 100, 200, 250, maybe 300 people killed. They would go into homes 
They gave guns to people, kind of deputized them. Let's go, let's go kill some epitaph. And they go into people's homes and they take them out and they're going to put them all in, a, in like a common area. And they shoot them if they get out of line or resist. And they did. Um, just 100 years ago. But imagine the generational impact of that. In a country where one of our key sources of wealth is a home, these people lost their homes, and it was a place of high home ownership. High, it, was, it, was, it was known that the, neighbor, the downtown of that neighborhood was known as the Black Wall Street because they were, they, they were doing that well, and most of them owned their homes. It's like what happened with Rondo. The Rondo neighborhood, highest ownership of a neighborhood, of all neighborhoods in St. Paul. Highest percentage when they put that highway through there and impacted, generationally impacted uh, the future because home values went like this. Imagine finding out that your beautiful home in Woodbury or Cottage Grove or in a small town in Wisconsin has been built, your whole neighborhood has been built on a to toxic, toxic waste dump. <laughs> and there is nothing you can do about it because it's been taken to court. Your family is getting sick. Other families are getting sick. You now owe whatever that house was worth. You've got that on you now. Um, imagine what that would do to your financial bottom line. Imagine what it would do to the next generation when you can't, when, when, when you're about to die and you're going to pass. Imagine what you got from your family. Maybe some of you got nothing, but most of you got something. And most of you are planning on leaving something. Imagine not being able to, to leave that because you're now behind for the rest of your life. Imagine if the corporation that did that said, that was ages ago. None of the people who made those decisions are working for us anymore. And we've got a great environmental record. We really do. We've got a great environmental record. We shouldn't have to pay the price for something a previous generation did. And let's say the courts agreed. Your home. Your home. Think of your home right now. Picture it in your mind. Imagine that happening. Now, I, and I've said this every week of the series. I'm going to say it again. I have no answers that we all ought to get around and say, this is what we should do. <laughs> this, is, this is the answer. to the, I, I can't tell you what that is. I don't know what that is. Um, and there are no easy answers. And literally, there are no perfect answers. None. There are no perfect answers to any of this. But the reality is that injustice has a legacy. I do know this. The prophets call not only Israel, but God's people today, followers of Jesus, to recognize, to see injustice, and to seek restoration of shalom. That's what he calls us to. That's what God calls us to. Again, we're not always going to agree on the solutions. There are no perfect solutions. Um, but the only way any solutions are possible is if Christians 
go into the public square with merciful hearts and humility and seek solutions that probably nobody is going to like. But it's the only way to bring that about. And I just want to say something real quick about systemic injustice so that, again, um, you're not hearing something that I'm not saying. That, yeah, you're not hearing something that I'm not saying. There is no question about systemic injustice. It's very simple. All of us here that are Bible-believing, committed to Christ, we all believe in systemic injustice. We know, I can say that for sure because I know that most of you believe that the laws in our country about abortion are unjust, unborn life, right? That's systemic injustice toward the unborn. As you see religious liberty eroding in our nation, If it erodes very much more, you're going to say systemic injustice. We're supposed to have freedom of religion. We don't have freedom of religion the way that we've had it. You can look all around the world and you can say human trafficking. People looking the other way. Laws being made to protect evil people all over the world. I'm not saying systemic injustice... Therefore, we need a utopian you know, solution. We can make everything right in this world. We're not going to make everything right in this world. God knew that Israel wasn't going to make everything right. He still called them to justice. And each one of us have to make a decision. And as a community, we have to make a decision. Are we going to be on the side of restorative justice or not? We have to ask ourselves that question. I'm not saying by systemic injustice that makes our nation just this terrible nation. It's glass half full. It, people who call it... It's a terrible nation, a good nation. Here you got the glass half full people. Here you have the glass half empty people, <laughs> right? Because it's all, all those things. It's all mixed together. And guess what? Whatever takes the place of this nation, it's either going to be really bad or a mixture, right? It's going to be a mixture. There's no utopia. We're not going to reach any utopia. We are just as Christians saying this is real and this is reality. And Jesus calls us the same thing, we're going to see it next week, do the same thing that God called the people of Israel, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Okay, we're going to begin our response time right now to God's word and uh, have some time. We, our response begins here, but it goes beyond here. And so we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to remember the great injustice that was done against Jesus, but he allowed to happen for restorative justice. We're going to remember that. And then we're going to have some time where uh, we have a kneeling bench back there. It's another way that you can respond. We have our candle uh, light stations up here. And just uh, because this was just reintroduced last week, uh, we stopped doing it uh, with COVID. Um, the, the whole idea there is to go and pray. It's not about lighting a candle. It's about praying and remembering the light of Jesus. And specifically, pray for someone you know, someone you love, you care for, people you work with, who are far from God and need the light of Christ. And be careful as you do it. You know, we'll just instruct you as kind of a reminder. You know, you can go like this with the candle. Don't try to do this. You'll burn yourself or, or something. So just turn the candle until you lit it, all right? And then put it up on the more protected area off the wood, all right?
So let's remember the body of Christ. His body was broken for us. Let's eat together. Jesus on the cross brought restoration of our relationship. He said, this is my blood, which is given for many. It's for the forgiveness of sins so that we can be made right with God. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you. We are blessed by Jesus. We have a vision that you've given us. Help us to be your people in our daily lives, in our daily world. Help us to see what you've called us to see and help us to stand up for truth where you've called us to stand up for truth. Help us not to get caught up in so much of the ugliness right now. Help us to go humbly in conversation, go humbly in studying your word, humbly in trying to bring change, humbly in seeking to bring people into a relationship with you and humbly in seeking to help each other pursue what is ethical, right, and good, not just for ourselves, but for the least of these. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.